Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and uh, per usual, uh, we would have talked about the IMF and what's going on in Pakistan and, and you know, there's obviously still a lot of economic uncertainty in the country, but there has been a lot of economic uncertainty here in the United States um, where the Silicon Valley Bank has collapsed. There's conversations about a banking crisis. Uh, UBS and Credit Suisse and others are under pressure as well. Um, and that reminded me that when my own uh, economic education began, uh, my education in economics began um, at Bentley University, um, Professor Aaron Jackson was joining us today, um, began teaching us about monetary policy, things that can go wrong. And at that time, this was 2008 to 2010, um, the global financial crisis was happening. So we learned, a, you know, an alphabet soup of terms and terminology about what the Fed was doing. And in a way, in 2023, um, over a decade later, we've kind of come full circle with the Fed back in the picture. COVID obviously was a big event, but recently with the interest rate hikes and the banking crisis, um, all of these conversations are back and center, uh, front and center for all of us. So I figured... I invite my former professor, Dr. Aaron L. Jackson um, at Bentley University to talk about what's going on. He's the Senior Associate Dean of Business at Bentley University right now, um, served as Professor of Economics there as well, uh, and he was Chair of the Economics Department, focusing on macroeconomics and monetary policy. His publications are in a number of journals, including Applied Economics and the Journal of Macroeconomics. And he provides expert commentary on monetary policy uh, to local and international media as well. So I'm excited for this conversation because I haven't spoken to him in years. And I remember vividly the classes we took um, on monetary policy and what the Fed was doing. So uh, Aaron, thank you for taking out the time and, and welcome to Pakistanomy. Uh, thanks, Uzair. I'm, I'm really um, glad to be here. I'm really glad to reconnect with you as well, and happy to have a conversation uh, with you, with your listeners. And um, you know, as you're you're talking about this, I'm having flashbacks of you know the global financial crisis in 2008 and uh, 2009, um, teaching the course. And I remember um, vividly, and you may have been in this course uh, at the time. Um, you know, in September of 2008, when the world seemingly was uh, imploding, at least the financial world. I was telling the students to take the textbook and really literally just throw it out the window because, um, you know, that was where we were at that point with, um, you know, with the state of, of macroeconomics and the knowledge that we had and sort of the stability of um, the profession um, and, and the macroeconomy. And so, um, you know, your, your comment about sort of coming full circle in some ways is, is, I think, highly relevant, but in other maybe perhaps surprising ways, maybe not so much. Um, and I'll elaborate a little bit on what I mean about that. Um, but I, I think maybe it's useful to, 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 to take a step back and, again, go back to sort of the financial crisis and the things that have happened over the last decade or so um, to maybe help understand a little bit about what we're seeing now today um, with, as you mentioned, SBB Bank and a few others, um, Credit Suisse. Um, and, you know, are there parallels? Um, you know, what's the connection? How did we get there? Um, so, you know, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, the, the global financial crisis, um, it was devastating um, in financial markets. It was devastating to economies. Um, and we spent pretty much the decade after that. So, you know, you think about the decade from about 2010 to really 20, really 2020, right, right before the crisis, the, the pandemic started, um, trying to, to, to 
grow and fall out of um, the depths of that that financial crisis. Um, and you know, through much of that decade, inflation in the U.S. and, and globally um, was was really low. Um, along with that, we saw uh, really low interest rates um, in a lot of countries as well. Um, and so there's a lot of, I think, confounding reasons or connected reasons, I should say, um, for why that is. Um, there's uh, first the story about demographics. Um, you know, if you look across uh, the spectrum of, of most countries in the world, um, those countries are getting older. The populations are increasingly uh, older on average. Um, uh, most countries aren't having babies, uh, or at least not at the rate that they were. Um, and so as you see the, the average age of people getting older, older people don't buy things, right? They, they save. And that's, um, that's how we see this sort of flip in um, the demographics changing, uh, translating rather into um, the financial markets, because that sort of created a, a situation where you had a lot more savings um, in, in the global economy than we did before. Um, and so that higher savings through simple supply and demand um, means that you're going to have uh, lower interest rates as a result of that. More, more savings means cheaper cost of credit, and that's going to drive down interest rates. Um, so that's one thing that we saw <clears throat> over that period, um, over that decade period, and we've continued to sort of see some of those factors at play. The other, one of the other major factors that we, we, we saw during that period is there was an unusually historically low level of productivity growth. Um, and what that means is that because productivity was low, um, it makes less sense for companies to invest in um, capital and equipment and things like that because the return on that is relatively low. So we didn't see a lot of demand for investment. Um, and so suddenly you get this wedge between supply and demand, um, which is pushing down. Uh, which also cost. to your earlier point, and I vividly remember when in the class you had said, throw the textbook out, right, was that the basic equation will say if cost of credit goes down, investment should go up because cost of capital is going up, but we haven't seen that. And that has confounded people in terms of saying, well, there's liquidity out there, but we're not seeing real investment demand sort of go up into productivity growth. And that's been, you know, a, a link to that, how the world has changed, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, so we have these factors that are that are weighing down on um, interest rates. And in particular, uh, as a monetary economist, we would talk about the, the neutral real interest rate. So from a monetary perspective, if you push interest rates above this neutral real rate, then monetary policy becomes restrictive. Um, and that's when you see inflation uh, fall and, and growth um, uh, be more restricted. Whereas if you have interest rates fall below that, then monetary policy would be e easier there would be um, you know, more impetus for inflation and growth and things like that. Um, but the point of this is that as, the, <clears throat> as this neutral real rate has fallen because of the demographic effects, because of the productivity effects, what that means is that it's pushed policy rates globally lower, um, and in fact, closer to um, what's often referred to as the effective lower bound, right, of zero. Um, so those nominal rates get bumped closer and closer to this zero level and for much of the decade as i said of the 2010 to 20 period um the policy rates in the us were uh, basically at that 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 zero lower bound or that effective lower bound 
Um, so all of this has created uh, a situation where you had really cheap credit conditions, interest rates were relatively low, and oh, by the way, that's also pushed down on uh, longer-term treasuries, the, the yields on longer-term treasuries. And then you throw in, um, you know, the <clears throat> uh, all the, the the monetary policies that were put into place at the time, um, aside from the policy rates themselves, and I'm thinking specifically about quantitative easing, right? So we saw a number of uh, major central banks around the globe um, commit to asset purchases on a very large scale. Um, and so in the U.S., the the <clears throat> the balance sheet ballooned uh, quite dramatically. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if they're purchasing assets uh, on a very, very large scale, then that means that they're injecting uh, money into the, the banking uh, and, and broader financial system on a very large sale, uh, scale. Um, so all that means that we have, you know, a, a whole lot of money sort of sloshing around in the financial system um, that's kept rates low, um, that's been, you know, Prima facie has been, you know, there to be able to access for, for for lenders, but for a number of reasons, you know, that money didn't sort of translate into, you know, excessive capital formation and investment and borrowing and things like that. Um, and I think that there's there's two there's two reasons for that. Um, you know, again, thinking back to that period between 2010 and 2020, um, you know, we had all this money in the banking system, but banks weren't lending it out. Right. And so there's two basic reasons for why that is. And again, why that didn't translate into more robust growth, more higher inflation and sort of, um, you know, push longer term interest rates up. But one of them is there, there just was a lack of adequate investment opportunities. Right. And this gets back to the productivity growth um, issue um, that I mentioned. Um, so banks just didn't see, um, you know, it profitable to loan out tons of money um, on a wide-scale basis. Um, and then the other thing as a consequence of the global financial crisis is that we had um, much stronger regulatory um, mechanisms in place. And so specifically, um, you know, if we think back to what happened with the financial crisis, you had um, banks holding a lot of lousy assets that ended up uh, being worthless and that created these cascading effects and systemic effects in the banking system, um, which collapsed the entire financial system. So the solution to that was that the um, uh, the, the Fed and uh, policymakers put together a series of uh, strengthened regulatory uh, frameworks that specific focus, uh, specifically focused on systemic risk, um, making sure that if a bank is doing something bad and it collapses is not going to um, have knock-on effects uh, in other areas of the financial or broader economy. Um, and, and so having that, um, you know, stronger regulatory uh, system in place meant that, you know, we have these large banks now that are very highly regulated. Um, we put into place these stress tests. So the, every year, these large banks would go through these um, exercises, these hypothetical exercises about if there's a shock to the system, how would the assets on the portfolio of these banks, how would that bank um, respond, survive? How would it have the ability to remain liquid and to function and do the things that are expected of it as a depository institution, right? Um, 
And so we had much stronger focus on resiliency in the banking and financial system. But a lot of that was really focused on these large, systemically important banks, right? Um, the Bank of America's, the J.P. Morgan Chase, right? Wells Fargo, those kinds of banks. Um, but, you know, we haven't really been thinking as much about these smaller banks, the regional banks um, and, and whatnot in that process, that regulatory process. Um, <clears throat> so I think all of that is sort of, um, you know, brought us a little bit to where we're, we're at today in terms of thinking about, you know, what we see with SDP Bank and some of the parallels. Um, one of the things that I want to mention before I get to a, a couple other uh, pieces of this is that, um, you know, when we think about uh, when we think about the again the, the global financial crisis and what happened more recently with SBB and a couple other banks in the U.S. specifically, the amount of lending that we've provided to the banking system is significantly higher just in the last few weeks than it was at a peak at the peak of the global financial crisis. So that wow. in and of itself, even is, though even though as you said, these are small, mid-sized banks, not the uh, too big to fail types that were actually under stress and insolvent and illiquid back in two thousand eight. That's right. That's right. Um, so that in and of itself is is sort of remarkable and maybe somewhat alarming, right? The difference, though, is that there doesn't seem to, the banks that we've seen. There's only been a handful of them. SBB is the the largest and most um, well-known of the, the collapses, um, they seem to be somewhat isolated incidents. Um, and so they're less connected and there's very unique circumstances in which um, we've seen these banks collapse. Um, and so for, for those reasons, um, you know, we've seen the Fed um, and other government policy agencies take notice, um, but there seems to be less uh, concern relatively speaking to the global financial crisis than um, uh, now than what we saw during the, the, the collapse in the financial crisis. Before we get to SVB and sort of, you know, the hike cycle that the Fed has kicked off, <laughs> one question I've had in my mind, I've been reading, this comes up in, in a few articles and analyses as well, from the 2010 to 2020 era, right? That as you said, older people save more. Um, and so they had more liquidity, more money, um, but it wasn't translating into real demand growth, which then connects to investments and inflation and all of that. But then some people say that the Fed providing this amount of money and not just the Fed, the European Central Bank, the United Kingdom, the Japanese, the Chinese, et cetera, mainly meant that we did have inflation, but it was in the form of asset price inflation because the savers are basically buying, they were actually buying financial assets. Um, how do you think about that particular point of view in the sense that the money was sloshing around, but it ended up being going into the stock market, into growth assets, technology startups, and things like that, where valuations, particularly through 2020, went through the roof. And now even that bubble has popped because the rates are now higher. Yeah, I'll, I'll focus on that period around um, you know 20 basically around 2014 to maybe 2017 or 18, because I think that's where um, a lot of this conversation was originally generated, right? The idea that the Fed is, is um, you know, and, and the other central banks you mentioned, they were involved in these asset purchase programs. They were pushing huge amounts of liquidity in the system. Um, 
And all it really seemed to be doing was, for instance, propping up equity markets, right? Um, and so then the, the question is, well, is that creating bubbles in the system? Um, is it is it creating adverse dislocations of uh, you know uh, capital uh, allocation, right? What I will say to that, and, and I will put sort of my Fed hat on, my Federal Reserve hat on, and and say that you know the the Fed can do only so much with the tools that it has, and in the case of the Fed, their almost sole interest was you know, based upon um, the mandate, which is maximum employment and stable prices. So in other words, we want to keep an unemployment relatively low, and we also want to keep inflation at a stable level, right? And so its whole the whole purpose of it was to essentially create inflation as uh, defined by the, the core PCE inflation index. That's the main indicator that they look at, right? Um, and it was recognized, I think, in a lot of ways that there would be you know, some uh, potential secondary effects like, you know, have uh, have escalation in asset prices, um, which we did see, right? Um, but the counterfactual to that is what's, I think, important to think about is that if the Fed didn't do those things, then how much longer would it take for the economy to um, get back to a baseline, right? Uh, back to full employment and back to on, uh, inflation at a reasonable level. Again, it, it took until essentially the pandemic where we had this extreme dislocation of um, uh, labor and capital for inflation to finally come up above you know, 2%. And, and um, that's what also people do say, right? Is that the Fed actually, as you also gave a data point, has provided more capital in the last few days and weeks than it did in the at the height of the GFC. And that was a criticism that both the Fed and Washington, the Hill here where I live, moved far too slow um, to deal with the crisis that occurred and basically led to a lost decade, essentially, in terms of growth of jobs and economy and really providing relief and income growth to people who had been really devastated by that crisis. And so we come to the pandemic and they unleash both on the fiscal side as well as on the monetary policy side, uh, a huge amount of money um, into the economy. Then we have obviously under the Biden administration, the Inflation Reduction Act and money going into sort of diversifying supply chains and things like that. So the government forcing that investment demand to come through, basically, which wasn't for the last decade or so. Um, so basically, I think you would agree then that the lesson learned of the GFC then was that we actually should move faster, do more in the pandemic, because otherwise the devastation, you cannot afford another lost decade, essentially. Yeah, that's and that's exactly the lesson that um, I think the Fed took um, to, to give you some uh, a stark sort of example of this um, in that period, in that March period of 2020, um, the Fed had a regularly scheduled meeting. I can't remember the exact date, but it was on a Wednesday. Um, and it, it, it the, the the scale of. Um, the problem escalated so quickly that the Fed actually decided to meet on the Sunday before that regularly scheduled meeting to um, prescribe a whole number of, of things that it was going to do precisely because it was worried that the next day, that Monday, when financial markets open, it could really create a collapse in the system. Um, 
And so the point of that is that I think the Federal Reserve and many other central banks around the world have learned to be a lot more flexible based upon sort of the playbook of what happened in the global financial crisis. Um, give you another example, um, you know, with again, coming fast forward to today with the SBB um, and the banking uh, challenges, the Fed created this new um, this new facility called the uh, the bank term funding uh, facility. Um, essentially, it's a, a form of a discount window where you know banks that have decent collateral they can uh, borrow against that if they have liquidity constraints. Um, and so the ability of the Fed to create these facilities and use them in targeted ways is much more dramatically. Um, impactful now than it was even during the financial crisis, certainly before that. And and that obviously is, is saving um, contagion to set into the system, which we'll get to in just a moment. But <laughs> now we are in this situation where obviously inflation is back. Um, people keep talking about in the mainstream media about the 70s and then, you know, a lot of money sloshing around and we're going into this era of hyperinflation and too much dollar, and this is the end of the dollar's era as the reserve currency, blah, blah, blah. You, you you name it, you'll find an analysis starting with too much money in the system and going all the way to like Germany and hyperinflation is, is around the corner type of views at, at the very extreme. How do you see this return of inflation and the way in which the Fed has stepped up in terms of hiking rates um, and both the intended and unintended consequences of that, right? Because Going back to your original point on demographics, for example, we see that the jobs market is still red hot. Um, and obviously, uh, folks like Paul Krugman and others have said, well, that's actually happening because we're aging. And so people are dropping off of the labor force. So it's actually becoming more complicated to cool the job side of the equation down and wages to cool down because there just isn't enough labor in the market. And oh, by the way, we're also investing now a whole lot more. So how do you see the Fed's reaction to all of this now, uh, because on the one end, we see people saying, well, they need to act more. And on the other, we have people saying, well, they should have actu actually not even done the last 25th, 25 basis points hike because we see flashing signs in the economy. Yeah. So in a note to a, a, a client, I do some consulting on the side. I um, had indicated that I thought that the Fed would do a 25 basis point increase. Now, my reasoning for that um, was I think basically sort of splitting the difference of what you're sort of alluding to as, as these different sort of sides of the camp. Um, the Fed for the last couple of months has suddenly been very concerned about inflation flaring back up. Um, so to your point, you know, going back to the roaring 70s with inflation, um, <clears throat> if the Fed doesn't stay ahead of that, then that could continue to create this persistent inflationary problem. So up until a couple of weeks ago, the Fed seemed pretty well set to raise by 50 basis points, right? So then we have this, um, you know, this banking crisis that comes along. I, I hesitate to use the, the term crisis because, again, it's at this point, we've seen it as an isolated incident of a few banks, right? Um, so, but we've had this, this banking situation pop up. Um, there's clearly some... Um, problems in the financial sector in certain areas. Um, and that's likely to have the effect of a financial tightening in the banking and financial system, right? And so what the, that means, and Jay Powell alluded to this in his um, press conference um, following the, the last Fed meeting on Wednesday, that 
you know, that in and of itself could create what would in effect be a policy tightening without having to change the Fed funds rate, for instance, right? The main policy interest rate. So, so that's sort of where I, I'm thinking about it. And then again, the inflation problem is still there. If you look at the data, um, it's still, it's inflation is coming down in the U.S., but it's coming down very, very sort of um, uh, at a slow rate, I think. Um, certainly much slower than you would want it to if the goal is to be at 2%. Um, I think we would be lucky to get to 3% by the end of next year, the end of 2024, based upon all the things that were happening that they're doing on the policy side. Um, and then you look if you look at, for instance, um, you know, the UK, their inflation is still at 10%, right? It's really high. And they're in, you know, the mode of more tightening and more policy um, uh, constraints. And, you know, the one other thing that I would add to this, I think, very complicated puzzle is that this inflation thing is, is global, right? If you look at all the, the major large countries, um, globally competitive countries in, in the world, they all face this inflation issue, right? So it's not necessarily something that the Fed has created or not created. It's not necessarily solely because of U.S. fiscal policy and you know the massive amount of spending that's happened. Again, that might be a contributing factor, but it's not the single factor or a, a very large factor, right? It's these global effects that are now related to the pandemic, the dislo dislocation of capital and labor, um, the disruption of supply chain um, that really escalated uh, input costs, um, as well as, as you mentioned before, the, the wage increases, like the effect of, of wage pass-through to higher inflation. We've seen that's been um, really substantial in this, this inflation story. And that's one of the reasons, although the, the supply chain stuff and the, you know, the global um, uh, commodities and inputs story has, I think, um, uh, has, has, has come down a little bit in terms of the inflation story. Wages, the wage growth is still pretty hot. Um, that's what the Fed is worried about. And yeah. again, to your point, these demographic things really aren't going away. So that wage growth thing seems to be something that's probably going to persist, which means we're probably going to have that sustained pass-through of inflation. So even if we have contractionary policy, even if we have appropriate contractionary policy, it's going to take some time to bring that down under the best of circumstances. Yeah. Right? And um, I think and then, so that's the reason why I would I would say, you know, not doing anything. Um, in other words, holding rates in light of what's happened in the banking system in this last meeting, I think would not be wise um, because it would signal, it would do two things. It would signal that the Fed thinks there's a larger problem in the banking financial system that maybe, that maybe there is, right? It would also signal that maybe it's not committed to that decline in inflation to, um, you know, uh, the 2% goal, which again, that could end up, end up creating much bigger problems of credibility than line. Yeah, and I think linked to that whole 10-year capital dislocation essentially, right, is what we are beginning to see, for example, 
Pakistan, a country we often talk about on this podcast, or Ghana, or Ecuador, and Egypt, and other places is the Fed is raising rates, which is making capital for them much, much more expensive. At the same time, input costs for commodities uh, and imported commodities has gone up. So the currencies are under pressure. Um, and the currencies, you know, that causes a double whammy effect on inflation. Um, so you're seeing inflation run amok in a place like Pakistan at 35-40%. Um, while, And this is why people are interested, well, what is the Fed doing? Because the reach for yield error, as I keep telling folks, is over um, in, in sort of the global system. So you got to adjust. And so debt restructuring becomes a problem. Access to the bond market becomes a problem, all of that stuff. But looking at more domestically here with Silicon Valley Bank, um, and you said, you know, for now, it seems like a bunch of isolated in incidents. Um, what we saw, at least from the coverage over here, was that it essentially was a bank that had taken short-term liabilities and used that to buy long-term assets in the treasury market and basically was misplaced in its in the way it thought about rates going up. And oh, by the way, um, under the Trump administration, some regulations were made easier which meant that they were not exposed to the same type of stress tests a JP Morgan or a Wells Fargo or a Bank of America would have been exposed to. So how did you then see sort of what happened over the last few weeks and what is still going through the banking system right now? Like, is this just limited to the fact that you had long tenor treasuries on your balance sheet that you were mispriced out of? Um, and so that adjustment has to happen. And so the Fed has stepped up. Or are there things that at least you're watching and keeping an eye on to see and follow whether this is more than just a few isolated banks in America. Yeah, that's that's really the million dollar question. Um, I want to I'm going to um, reverse back to the financial crisis. Um, if if uh, you remember, maybe some other folks listening remember, in the spring of 2008, Bear Stearns, which is one of the oldest investment banks in the United States, they collapsed. And the, the Fed intervened and there was some government intervention that was done. It went away, but it was bought by a, another company. Um, that's That seemed to be a sort of isolated incident um, because again, at the time, inflation was still rising relatively rapidly um, because of um, energy and fuel costs primarily, right? Um, and so, again, you have this weird confluence at that time of inflation was relatively strong. We had this blip of Bear Stearns collapsing. We took care of it. We thought, you know, there wasn't necessarily any other issues. Um, and then you fast forward to September of 2008 and the financial system uh, implodes, right? Um, By so the way, I, I remember that, I remember that day in the Bentley Library cafeteria, watching the four, one of the four screens where basically it was flashing red, and like that day is like etched in my memory as a student. Yeah, so I I don't want to say that you know it's it's isolated and we don't have anything to worry about and everything is great, right? Because Bear Stearns is an example of where we thought that maybe you know. I don't remember what I thought about it at the time because that was a long time ago, but you know, other folks might have said, oh, this is just a harbinger of things to come, right? So my point is is that we just need to be careful about you know dismissing uh this uh altogether. Having said that, um, you know, there there's there is some reasons I think to believe that this is an, a somewhat more isolated set of circumstances than what we had in the financial crisis. Um from a big picture perspective, um, 
you know, the Fed can still raise policy interest rates to help tighten monetary policy and bring inflation down while still providing targeted liquidity to banks that really need it, right? So if there are other banks that pop up um, that get into the situation, then the Fed can intervene and sort of uh, do use both of these tools simultaneously to achieve sort of different objectives, right? Um, so that's that's a good thing. Is that, again, before, we have a bigger stream of consciousness here. thought on this before I forget was the Fed's own origin and origin story, right, is an institution to deal with banking crises. And it was built up to prevent that from happening. So there's a legacy. We now think of the Fed as inflation and employment, which is its mandate. But originally, it, the idea was to prevent exactly the situations that you're describing from happening. Yeah, that's the whole reason why why central banks exist, right? To prevent bank runs and collapses in the banking and financial system. Um, and so that's that's the history of, of central bank. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you have this situation where from a, a broader perspective, the Fed has these tools that it can deal with sort of independently to help, um, you know, banks, um, you know, if, if there's problems and they can also tighten policy if, if needed. With SVB, um, and again, this is a, one of the reasons why I think it's a little bit more isolated than what we saw with SVB. There's there's two keys to um, what happened there. So you had this um, smaller or regional sized bank, although it was it's the 16th largest bank in the country. Um, so that sounds like it makes it large, but we've had a significant amount of consolidation in the banking system. So the top 10, the size of the top 10 banks, the market share of those top 10 banks today is vastly more than the market share of, say, the, the largest 10 banks um, 20 or 30 years ago, right? So what that means is when I say it's the 16th largest bank in the country, well, that might have meant something 30 years ago, but it doesn't mean as much today. So what about SVB? They had, they were an outlier in terms of the percentage of un, uninsured deposits that it had, right? Um, and so what that means is that you have basically a lot of high net worth individuals. You mentioned startups, right? So they were using SVB as a, a bank for um, you know, their operations and they have you know, over the $250,000 uh, insured limit Right. So you have small businesses that often have, um, you know, uh, money in the bank above those those limits. Um, so it had an unusually large amount of balances above the insured limit of two hundred fifty thousand. And as you mentioned, it had a significant holdings of uh, long duration treasuries. Right. And those two things put together in this higher interest rate environment means that when long rates went up, of course, the value of those treasuries fell, which then makes the assets on the, the balance sheet worth less. Now, the ironic part about this is that we think about treasuries as a, you know, the safe risk-free asset, right? So if a bank is holding treasuries as part of their uh, portfolio of assets, what's the problem, right? Well, the problem is, in some sense, they became highly illiquid because you had this sort of gentle increase in longer rates, which ended up being much more pronounced over the last few months. And what that meant is that 
the value of those treasuries to the bank, well, in terms of collateral, they would be less, right? If they had to sell them on the open market, they would take capital losses. And so that's what uh, depositors were seeing. That's what analysts were seeing. Um, now, if the bank just held those assets to maturity, there would be no capital losses. Well, if they do that, then that means those assets are not liquid, right? So that's where we've seen some of these banks get into trouble is that even though we think of treasuries as liquid assets, with that acceleration in rates and the decline in uh, bond prices, you either take capital losses to sell them to get liquidity, or you hold on to them, in which case they're illiquid. And that's also exactly connected to that also was the fact also that, right, that we heard about sort of the, the Silicon Valley tech bro community being on the same groups and Discord channels, et cetera, saying, take your money out. If that had not happened, it was a classic bank run. If that had not yeah. happened, they wouldn't have had to take those losses and be insolvent slash illiquid at that point in time as well. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really great point. I'm glad you, you mentioned that because you know, if we think about a good old fashioned bank run, you know, it's you see a line of four or five people outside of a bank and then you call your cousin and say, hey, don't you have a bank account there? Like maybe there's something wrong. And then they go and, you know, now with social media, that's that was driving a lot of it is, you know, the it, exactly what you mentioned. There's, um, you know, a small group of people that had large sums of money in these banks and they all talked to each other and they said, you know what, this doesn't look right. We need to get out. And so within you know a matter of hours there was you know billions of dollars being um withdrawn from from the bank and so that created this really really sharp need to um inject liquidity into svb bank um and, and part of the other aspect of this which really makes it unique is that it a lot of this the, the most virulent part of it happened um, later in the afternoon on a Friday. And so the bank's ability to access normal channels of capital through the Federal Reserve System, the FDIC, um, and other um, affiliated um, bank liquidity facilities, it was much more limited because of the markets were closed on the East Coast, the, some of the offices and, and operations um, that would take place and interface with East Coast time, it, they just weren't available. And the speed, killed it, right? The speed of that deposit outflow along with the lack of their the bank's ability to um, get funding and liquidity uh, in, in short order, that those two things really um, were the least been there. Yeah, and I think it's 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 the technology-enabled classic bank run um, that we saw. And in fact, if you had kept your money there and not been part of it, you're on average fine. Um, but there were again. I, I was I was speaking with a, a venture capitalist out of the valley, and you know he was saying and sharing about how all of a sudden now they're reading macro reports and you know treasury patterns and things like that to understand exactly to your point, right? Typically, people would say, "Well, you're holding treasuries; those are safe. I don't need to worry <laughs> about it." Turns out, you kind of do have to pay attention to the mix of the treasuries that you're holding on your balance sheet, and now people are waking up to that new fact as well. And so we'll continue seeing, you know, what other banks have exposure on that side. The one other thing I wanted to get your take on was, you know, we saw 
Secretary of the Treasury Yellen make some points about how much they will provide coverage, and then she sort of changed her tune a little bit over the last week as well. Um, what have you made of the response outside of the Fed, particularly from the Treasury side, in terms of what they're willing to do? Because again, I've sort of been reading and been hearing two arguments. One is the classic moral hazard argument, that if you bail them out, the expectation is it, it happens again, to which my point at least is, well, this crisis is not due to bad habits. It's just a asset liability mismatch that has happened in the short term. But then the other side of the argument, the more insurance-oriented people I've been listening to are arguing, well, this is the whole thing. If you don't provide insurance and a, and sort of a floor early on, then the contagion will mean you will intervene three, four, five months down the road with a lot more losses. Um, so what do you where do you stand and, and how do you see that debate that's going on on the Treasury side of the conversation? Yeah, that, that's a that's a really great question. And I was going to actually kind of get to that. Um, let me go back to SDB, right? Here you have a bank that all else equal seems perfectly healthy, right? They got a lot of deposits. They're the 16th largest bank in the country. Um, all of their assets are safe, right? Agency mortgage-backed securities, which are highly rated. Treasuries, again, risk-free. Um, and they have access to liquidity facilities at the Fed, right? Up until, you know, the Thursday or whatever it was when all of that started to snowball, it looked like a perfectly healthy bank. Sideline to that, I think it was very poorly managed because the point that you sort of alluded to is that we could have seen this in, increase in interest rates coming, right? The increase in treasury rates. And so a prudent bank manager and portfolio manager would recognize that, well, with tighter policy, inflation persisting, that's gonna lead to higher long rates and that's gonna adversely impact our portfolio. So we need to hedge our risk. They didn't hedge any of that, right? They didn't adjust their portfolio or do anything. Um, and so, that signals that there's a larger problem there, right? Um, the bank management problem. But aside from that, right? Think about the optics. Again, you have a perfectly healthy bank and a perfectly healthy economy. Suddenly they collapse. Now, if we only insure, you know, up to the $250,000 limit of this bank, what's going to be the perception of the public? you know, from other depositors in small regional banks, right? How is that going to play out? It's likely that people are going to look at that and be like, wow, we thought this bank was healthy. It collapsed. I'm going to go to my bank and take my money out because that's probably, I mean, that's got to be vulnerable too, right? So that's the thinking, I think, of, of the Fed and the Treasury and the FDIC is that if we don't go in and, and forcefully, you know, um, make them whole, even if these are high net worth individuals, right? It's not about signature bank. It's not about bailing out depositors or signature bank or the investors of that bank. It's about uh, strengthening or maintaining um, stability in the broader uh, banking system specifically. So that's why they acted to uh, ensure all of the deposits of those bank uh, deposits at SVB and think it's signature and um, you know, uh, a couple others maybe. Um, so with that, uh, you mentioned the discussion of um, Janet Yellen at the Treasury and, you know, possibly the FDIC having a blanket wholesale 
um, insurance of all deposits in the banking system. First of all, from, from what I understand, that was something that she sort of presented as a you know, potential option, but was never really intended to be a formal policy prescription, right? Um, and I think she's also sort of walked that back a little bit. Um, As of, I think yesterday in her comments, she mirrored her earlier remarks, but then changed a few words here and there, which, again, I know from your class, you got to read every single word and it changes over time to know where the policymaker or the official is going with this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so to your point, it's a very it would be a very dangerous precedent from a moral hazard standpoint to simply blanket insure all banks' deposits at this point. First of all, it would be incredibly expensive to do, right? The money has to come from somewhere. So it either comes from the fees that banks pay into the FDIC to support that insurance program, or it comes from taxpayers, right? Either way, the money has to come from somewhere, and that would be really expensive to ensure the literally dozens of trillions of dollars of deposits in the U.S. banking system. Right? And I think that the fiscal side of it, just really quickly, would then become a political problem because this is north of $250,000. So a lot of individuals going to their congressmen and women and their senators would say, why are you taxing me and using my taxpayer money? to bail out and provide guarantees and insurance to people who owe 10, 50, 30, 40 times more money than I do in the bank. Like this is yeah, not so fair. Yeah, that becomes a, problem. a political problem, right? Um, you know, it's a problem of moral hazard, which we saw very clearly in the uh, financial crisis. It needs to be a break on bad behavior, right? Um, and then, the related aspect of though of this though I think is does it make sense to reevaluate the um, two hundred fifty thousand dollar limit? Probably, right? Um, you know, it's been since two thousand eight since we we reevaluated that. Um, you know, prices have probably just about doubled since then. You know, the general price level, um, the amount of deposits in the banking system is I don't know what it is. It's probably like tripled or quadrupled. Um, you know, so if you look at some of those benchmarks and think about what's the appropriate level for the insured amount of deposits in an account, it probably should be more than 250. Maybe it's 500,000, right? Um, so I, I think certainly the FDIC will probably look at this. Um, it's not something that will necessarily happen overnight unless we have more virulent, um, you know, banking crises um, that pop out of this. But um, I think it's the, the the limit is something that is going to be evaluated. Um, and then the other thing that I think we're really likely to see is much more um, scrutiny on um, the the regional banking side, right? Um, stronger regulatory oversight. Again, the ironic part about this is twofold. We had the financial crisis, which was caused by a bunch of large banks that are systemically important. They collapsed the entire financial system. So what did we do? We created a whole system of regulations to ensure that those large banks are not going to be in a position to uh, cripple and collapse the financial system, right? So we were paying attention to these big banks. We forgot about these regional and smaller banks because, well, they're not systemically important, right? They're just banks. We can insure them. And, oh, by the way, they have all of these safe assets, right? Well, they're not really safe, and we just learned that under 
somewhat unusual circumstances, they can, um, you know, really do in a, a, a bank. So now we probably have to rethink the regulatory lens of uh, these, these smaller banks, the ones that don't fall under the systemically important large banking lens and think about, you know, what's the impact in the banking system for those folks and think about what are the assets on the balance sheet? What's the risk? Does it have, you know, these these maturity mismatches that, that you alluded to that created some of the problems with liquidity with SPP, right? Um, what is, what's the appropriate level of oversight and, and how does that, you know, translate into, um, you know, the, the, the broader uh, banking and financial system? Yeah, I think there's lots up in the air on that. And I think in a polarized environment here in Washington, it's going to be at least interesting to see how the the debate uh, moves forward, right? I saw Senator Warren coming at the Fed for raising rates too quickly as well, which, you know, when I put my Pakistani economy hat on, I'm like, well, policymakers in Washington and Islamabad are pretty much the same. They love low interest rates and don't want the Fed to do uh, what it should do uh, to stabilize the economy and the and the financial system. But we'll, we'll keep an eye out on that. Um, before, last couple of questions I had for you, would love recommendations from you on books or things people should read or follow to you know learn more about these topics. Um, and connected to that also is, what are you on the lookout for in the, let's say, next 8, 12, 16 weeks as this thing moves forward, right? Again, as you said, Bear Stearns, many thought, was just a blip, and you know Lehman followed soon thereafter. So if you're sort of following that kind of trajectory, like the Bear Stearns-type event has happened, um, and hopefully it doesn't lead to a Lehman, but what should people be watching out for? Um, to sort of continue monitoring this situation, and then what would what would you recommend they read? Um, I'll, I'll I'll answer the what's what do we look look out for first? Um, so, you know, I I don't think that we're going to see that repeat of the Bear Stearns turning into Lehman part, right? Again, because we've learned so much from the the financial crisis, the Fed has learned so much, policymakers have learned so much about. Um, monitoring and, um, you know, the need for swift policy action, uh, you know, where appropriate. And in, so if we do, you know, see some of these blips, um, I, I think the Fed is going to take very forceful um, action to make sure that the, the banking system is uh, supported. Um, you know, to give you just a quick sort of example of this, I mean, um, that new banking facility that I mentioned, the bank term funding facility, um, on March 15th, there was about $12 billion of uptake in that facility, the lending facility. Um, the week after that, so this is yesterday, uh, it was reported that there's almost $54 billion of lending that's running through that facility. So just in that one week, uh, in this last week, there's been uh, you know, over $30 billion uh, extended to banks through that facility. The overall amount of borrowing uh, from the Fed in March 8th, it was about $4 billion. And if you look at the, the numbers prior to that, it was, it bounces around three, four billion, five billion, somewhere in there, right? It's flatlined. And then we get to March 15th, it's 143 billion. And March 22nd, it's almost $300 billion. Wow. Right, so it it increases quite dramatically. 
Um, so my point is that I, I think that the Fed, again, is going to be highly proactive in making sure that the banking system is resilient. And so that's why I don't think now we might see some of these banks again pop up here and there, but I, I think it's going to be something that the Fed is going to be able to deal with more proactively to ensure it doesn't create uh, a, a really big problem in the financial system and, and the banking sector. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's entirely possible. Um, I don't think this is the base case, but it's entirely possible six months from now. Again, we could look at the banking system and say it's really well capitalized. There's no, you know, any, there, there doesn't seem to be any, any inherent risk. And oh, by the way, inflation is still really pretty strong. And the Fed might keep pushing an, uh, the policy rate up because inflation, right? Not because of this banking stuff. You know, I, I think the base case, though, is that, you know, the Fed is probably potentially going to raise policy rates one more time and then hold it there and just sort of see what happens, right? Or maybe it doesn't raise at all, and we're just sort of at the point where it's going to wait and see. Um, it all really depends a lot on how the, the financial tightening in the banking system works its way through based upon the, you know, the ripples that we've seen in this, these um, two cases. Um, <clears throat> so that's where I'm at, I think, with policy. Um, to answer your question about um, uh, books, you asked me, you know, what books do I read? <laughs> I don't actually read books. Um, and that might sound a little silly being an academic, but <laughs> I, I don't I don't find time to actually be able to read books. Um, you know, I'll give you the list of, of stuff that I read, which is the Wall Street Journal. I read it religiously every day. Um, and that's where I get a lot of my information. Um, and then I read I read kids books um, to my my two year old and my four and a half. Well, that's a priority these days. So yeah, yeah, that makes it, yeah you do read books. You read kids books. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so so that's sort of where I'm at in my literary world. Yeah, I'm I'm more partial to Bloomberg these days um, than the Journal. But yeah, if you read either or one of them, and then maybe add on the Economist every once in a while, I think that's a sure. really solid source of information. But uh, Professor Jackson, thank you so much for taking out the time. This was a wonderful and enlightening conversation. Um, I always have learned a lot from listening to you. And years later, that's still the case. So thank you. Um, and, and we'll keep an eye out on what keeps happening. Um, and hopefully, this is just a blip. It's not the financial crisis uh, that you went through as a professor at Bentley and I went through as your student. Um, and, and, you know, it was crazy times. I still remind uh, young graduates coming out that, you know, in, in our econ class, I graduated 2010, 2009, I think out of 45 or some uh, econ grads at Bentley, maybe two or three had jobs. And out of my year, maybe 10 did. Um, and that's not a position anybody wants to be in. So hopefully it doesn't come to that. And the Fed and the policymakers, not just in the U.S., but around the world proactively deal with whatever um, blips that are on the horizon. So again, thank you. Much appreciated. Of course, it was, uh, it was there. It's uh, it's really great to, to connect with you again. And um, yeah, I'm delighted to, to talk about this stuff. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.